From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. The first time women's soccer was included in the Olympics in 1996, the U.S. team won the gold, and today's guest, Brianna Scurry, was the team's goalkeeper. She went on to win a second gold medal and a World Cup. Her soccer career was ended by a severe concussion in a collision on the field. Unable to work, broke, and in despair, she pawned her gold medals. She got them back and got the surgery she needed with the help of the woman who became Scurry's wife. Also, we'll talk with Washington Post reporter Scott Hyam about how America's opioid industry resembled a drug cartel. It's the subject of his new book. And jazz critic Kevin Whitehead will review a new album by the Taishan Surrey Trio. My first guest, Brianna Scurry, is one of the most celebrated players and one of the top goalkeepers in the history of women's soccer in the U.S. She won a World Cup in 1999 and two Olympic gold medals. She's the only African-American woman in the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame. A photo of her hangs in the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture. And she's pretty sure she's the only black lesbian goalkeeper who has been on the cover of a Wheaties box. Her soccer career ended abruptly and painfully in 2010 when she was playing in the new Women's Professional Soccer League and a player from the opposing team collided with her with her knee crashing into Scurry's right temple. It left Scurry with a traumatic brain injury resulting in constant excruciating headaches, blurred vision, cognitive problems, depression, despair, and poverty. She was unable to work and the league soon collapsed, so she had no soccer medical team or training facility to help her. Her insurance company kept denying her money for the surgery she needed to repair the nerve that was the source of her pain, and she was reduced to pawning her two gold medals. How she got them back and ended up marrying the woman who made that possible is just one of the stories she tells in her new memoir, My Greatest Save. Brianna Scurry, welcome to Fresh Air, and I'm so glad you're feeling better and that you're back in life again. Oh my goodness, Terry, it's such an honor to be on the show and speaking with you. Yes, I am doing incredibly well, so thank you for that and for having me. Your first of two Olympic gold medals was in 1996, and this was the first time that there was women's soccer competition in the Olympics. So it had to have like special meaning for you and for soccer fans throughout the United States. But it was the early days of women's soccer, uh, and it wasn't that long ago. What did your win mean to the future of women's soccer? Mm, That's a fantastic question. So I was eight years old, sitting on the couch with my mom and dad on either side of me, watching the 1980 Lake Placid ice hockey team beat the USSR in the semifinal game 4-3. to three. And as you know, they had lost to them 10-3 to three before that. And so seeing that game somehow at eight years old, I was so inspired. I, I rose up from the couch and declared to my parents that I wanted to be an Olympian. And they, uh, thankfully, were, were nurturing of that little inspiration and helped me um, hone my skills in all different sports through high school. And I made this sign when I was about 15 years old that said, Olympics 1996, I have a dream. And at that point, I figured about that time, I would be old enough to actually participate in the Olympic Games. And so I had a bit of a roadmap that I had created, not really knowing the power of what I was doing at the time. But that roadmap led me 
to the Olympics in 1996. And soccer just so happened to be, like you said, uh, a brand new sport that was allowed into the Olympic Games. Um, the soccer has been the most popular sport throughout the world. And the Olympic Committee decided that women's soccer was on, on the upswing and, and deserved to be in that Olympic Games. And so I found myself um, at the exact right place at the right time. In addition to that, that Olympics was considered the Olympics of, of the woman. And for women's soccer, it was literally an explosion. We had 76,000 people at our Olympic final and it was a glorious and fantastic evening. I saw so many different people that I knew from my childhood and growing up. And that game not only did amazing things for women's soccer, but also for women's athletics in this country. And so women's soccer started to explode in that time period. Um, so in, in, in the mid-1990s, during the period of the Olympic win, the first Olympic win, you helped fight for some semblance of equity for women's soccer. And what you were asking for in those early days seems so small. I mean, what were, <laughs> what were you asking for then? So back then, um, that was the beginning. And I don't say small to belittle it, but I mean, things were so disproportionate. Comparatively. Comparatively yes. Yeah, you had to start someplace. Absolutely. No, you're right. You're right. We had to start someplace. And where we started our battle with U.S. soccer was with resources. So, for example, we were asking for the same number of massage therapists that the men's team had. We were asking for similar hotel um, quality. Uh, we were also asking for no middle seats on planes, uh, potentially first class and business class, but at the very least, windows and aisles, because we often took these routes um, to games and to training sessions that were ridiculous, you know, multiple three, three and four flights instead of having direct flights. There were so many inequities back then um, in certain things, mostly resources and conditions that we wanted to equalize. Also, uh, right before the Olympic Games, we wanted to make sure that we were going to get a bonus for silver and bronze as well. Like the expectation of the Federation was that the women needed to win to get any bonuses. And we didn't think that was fair. We thought uh, a medal of any color deserved uh, reward. And so the Federation was very um, precarious. They were very, uh, you know, against giving the women their just due. Well, at we'll that compare point. what men got to what women got. So, for example, we were um, allowed to have $10 a day for per diem for women. And back then, the men made 25 to $35 a day. And the explanation for that was that men eat more. <laughs> Which, <laughs> but, here's, but here's the irony in that statement is per diem was not used for eating because meals were provided. The per diem was for other activity and for your um, stay for that day. And what about what men got for meddling compared to what women got? So the men were not only going to receive, you know, tens of thousands of dollars uh, per player for meddling, but they also were going to receive tens of thousands of dollars for advancement out of the round robin group into the quarterfinals, semifinals, and the final, never mind actually winning anything. Um, they were going to receive money each step of the way. 
And so that was one of the one of the biggest glaring issues back then was uh, pool money is what they call it, pool money for um, certain positions out of the tournament. Um, the higher, obviously, the, the, the further you go, the higher the money is. What did women get for meddling? Well, the the Federation wanted to give us, I think, $1.2 million as a whole, the entire team, for winning gold and nothing for silver and nothing for bronze and nothing for advancement. So it was very, very glaring differences. Their expectation of the women's team in order to get any any reward or, or money was to win the whole thing, whereas the standard for the men's team was just to get out of the round-robin play in order for them to get a bonus. So what leverage did you and your teammates use to um, improve, to take a step forward t- toward equity? So we felt in 1995 that we had some leverage um, at that point in time because the Olympics were just around the corner and we were in fact favored to win. So myself and eight of my other teammates basically decided to go on strike um, against the Federation. We risked not only our livelihoods, but also our dreams. Like I said earlier, I was an eight-year-old girl who wanted to be an Olympian And here I was at the precipice of potentially achieving a lifelong dream, and I was risking it for something that was greater than myself. We knew that the Federation would have to cave eventually, but boy, were they mean and nasty in the process. I mean, they said some very unsavory things about us as players, and all we were trying to do was provide equity for not only ourselves, but for all the women that would come behind us and, and don the jersey and uh, represent the United States of, of America in soccer. Um, we wanted to make sure that that playing field was more level. And uh, they were very, very, uh, you know, strong-willed and, and had iron fist about it. But eventually, um, we got what we wanted. And what did you get? So we did get um, bonuses for silver if we won. So we compromised there. And also the um, circumstances and the conditions with the uh, resources that I mentioned, um, increasing the number of massage therapists, things like child care, the per diem went up to $25 from $10. So we did actually make a lot of great gains, but there was obviously a lot more things that had to be handled. But in subsequent um, CBAs, which is collective bargaining agreements, we were going to attack those things in the future. My guest is Brianna Scurry. Her new memoir is about her soccer career, the concussion that ended her career, and her difficult and long recovery. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and jazz critic Kevin Whitehead will review a new tradition-minded album that includes standards performed by the Taishan Sari Trio. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with Brianna Scurry, one of the most celebrated players and one of the top goalkeepers in the history of women's soccer in the U.S. She's a two-time Olympic gold medalist and won a World Cup in 1999. You started playing for the new Pro League Women's Professional Soccer, and in 2010, your career ended after a life-changing concussion. It was a traumatic brain injury. Would you describe what happened? 
in the first half, I bent over for a low ball coming from my left-hand side. And as I was going to make that save, and I was bent over, the attacking player came from the right-hand side and trying to get her toe on the ball in front of me, crashed into the side of my head with her knee, and I never saw her coming. And so because of the fact that I didn't see her, I couldn't brace at all for it. And so I was completely exposed. She crashed into me. We bundled over. And of course, my first thought was, did I make the save? Sure enough, I had the ball in my hands. And then I stood up and my whole life changed from that moment. And I knew there was something really wrong at that point. And that was the last soccer game I've ever played. Did you ever watch video of that collision? Yes, that, that video, that collision is actually on YouTube. What's it like for you to watch the video? For the longest time, I was mad at her. And I realized over time that my anger towards her wasn't helping me. Um, and that I, at the time, for a long time, wished it was I could undo it that I could undo that hit. And when you're in an emotional state, like a concussion, you are essentially disconnected from yourself. And I had all these symptoms and I was so angry at her. And I, and I prayed so many days. I was like, why couldn't you have just missed me? You know, because I was a different person now. I was, I changed emotionally. I was different. My confidence, my focus, all these different things and I was so lost in the wilderness is what I call it. Lost in the wilderness, I was disconnected. And I just was so mad at her for hitting me and making my life go off the, off the rails like she did. But you changed your attitude eventually? Eventually I did, yes. I was able to, with a lot of therapy, so I was in that state of emotional distress I had emotional and physical symptoms. I had depression. I once stood on the ledge of a waterfalls in Little Falls, um, New Jersey, and contemplated suicide. The, the railing where the falls were was really low, and the water was just rushing over the, over the falls, and I could feel the mist of that water on my face, and I contemplated jumping over. And I knew if I did that, I wouldn't survive it because I couldn't swim. And the water was so high because it had rained just recently. And I knew if I go into this water, I'm never coming out. But what stopped me was the image of my mom and some official, some law enforcement official knocking on her door and notifying her that her baby was gone. I couldn't do that to her. So that image got me off the ledge and onto some solid ground, literally. And after that, I decided I wasn't going to commit suicide while my mother was alive because I just couldn't do it to her. And that was the beginning of my journey back to me. So you're going through the depression you had no income because you couldn't work. And because the professional league that you were part of basically dissolved, 
Um, you didn't have, you know, an infrastructure from the team of medical support or teammates. Um, and so you were on your own. Your insurance company kept refusing to give you the surgery that you needed to repair the occipital nerve, which had been damaged and was the reason for your excruciating headaches. Um, so you were really just like getting nowhere. And you ended up pawning your Olympic gold medals. Well, it wasn't exactly called pawning. These were like non-bank loans, <laughs> which is kind of like <laughs> high-class pawning. Um, would, would you describe how you pawned the Olympic medals? So on the day that I went there, I drove my vehicle with this raging debate going on in my heart and my soul and my mind about what I was doing. I was essentially going to take my eight-year-old self, the medal that I had wanted since I was young, the medal that I, my parents, and all my family, and all my friends, and all my coaches had worked to get. And I was going to go, and I was going to give it to these strangers for money. And at that point, I cried. I remember driving up the highway. Each exit I passed, I wanted to turn around and go back. And I fought this battle in my mind. On one hand, I knew I needed this money in order to be stable, in order to not lose my apartment, in order to not basically either be homeless or go back and live with my mom to support myself. And I just cried the whole way there. And then when I got there, I just sat there in the office. And to their credit, they were so kind. They were so nice to me. They were so polite. And they they had a tenderness about them that made me feel comfortable about what I was doing. But as soon as I left the, the building, I went to my car and I just cried and I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried for over an hour before I could even get up the strength to drive home. How much money did you get for the medals? So I got a total of 18000 for both of them. I got Five thousand for the first one, yes, and then thirteen for the second combined. You know, in the scheme of things, it's a lot of money to help you get by for a while. But in the scheme of things, it's it's really not that much money. It's not. It's not that much money at all, considering all the time and effort that goes into winning and what those medals represented. It was a pittance comparatively, but it was the patch and the temporary fix um, that I needed to get some stability. Um, in order to continue to press forward and and get the help I needed. At the same time that this was happening, your relationship with Naomi, who had been the team massage therapist, and you'd been a couple for about six years, that relationship was breaking up, although you remained good friends. Um, And she had a startup at some point um, for an apparel company that she was starting. And there was an event for potential investors. And she told you you should come. And you kind of reluctantly went. And it was there that you met the woman who not only helped you buy back your Olympic medals, but eventually became your wife. Um, tell us a little bit about, about her and um, what she was able to do for you to get your life back. I, I should mention she she, I don't know if she still has this, but she had... Uh, it's what sounds like a very high-level public relations company. 
Yes, she still does have it. And she was at that event that you had mentioned. And I didn't meet her there in person necessarily. But at that event, at the end of it, after being there, my headache was so bad that I laid down on the couch in the other room. And as people were leaving the event, I was laying on the couch. And sure enough, Krissa saw me on that couch. And so a few days later, when she and Naomi were talking over dinner about investing in the company, Naomi, in in a stroke of absolute like miracle for me, learned that Krissa was in PR and she said to her, I have a friend who's battling the insurance company and trying to get this procedure done. They are not budging and not helping her. Do you think that you could potentially help her with maybe some well-placed media move that ball along? And Krissa said, sure, let, let her have her call me. So the idea was get a lot of publicity, shame the insurance company, and get the support that you needed from the insurance company so you could get your surgery. Exactly. Because the insurance company definitely didn't want the headline to be two-time Olympic gold medalist, World Cup champion, battles insurance company over clear um, issues and obvious payments that they should make. And so when Krissa and I finally did speak, she said, okay, let me speak to your lawyers and we'll talk about what we can do. And the lawyers are the ones that went back to the insurance company and said, look, here's the deal. You need to do the right thing. You need to pay for the surgery. We already went to court and it was found that you were liable and that you need to pay. So do it or this is what's going to happen. The media is going to find out this story and it's not going to look good for you. At that moment, they did a complete 180. I got my surgery. I got a whole year of therapy after that. And I was able to settle with that insurance company during that year as well. It's infuriating that they didn't really believe you, mm-hmm. that they didn't believe how severe your symptoms were. They didn't believe that you should have this operation that was recommended for you. And when you woke, oh, when you got this surgery and awoke from it, you had no headache. You felt great. <laughs> yes, I did. I, I knew immediately. So Naomi and Krissa were both... At the, at the hospital when I got the surgery. So when I came out of surgery, I remember opening in my eyes and just being so happy I started crying because when you have chronic pain like that, that I had for three years, you don't realize how painful and how much energy it takes up until it's gone. Brianna Scurry, it's been so great to talk with you. I'm so glad you're well. Terry, thank you so much for honoring me and having me on your show, and it's been fantastic to speak with you. Brianna Scurry's new memoir is called My Greatest Save. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis with suicidal thoughts, you can find support by dialing or texting the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. That's 988.
African-American composer and MacArthur Fellow Tyshawn Sori has written music for orchestra, chamber ensembles, and opera companies, and leads his own groups featuring improvising musicians. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead says, before Sori was an acclaimed composer, he was known as an excellent, flexible jazz drummer. A new trio album features Sori on drums. Tyshawn Sori's trio on Duke Ellington's R.E.M. Blues. Just the sort of easy, grooving quickie that Duke would bring to a casual session to get the players in sync. Sori's ad hoc trio uses it much the same way. They didn't rehearse long for their album Mesmerism to keep it loose. A few new music improviser composers, like Tyshawn Sori, have made records where they swing on standards for the pleasure of it and to acknowledge their debt to jazz practices that inform their own layered, complex, multi-vectored music. Drummer Tyshawn Sori with pianist Aaron Deal and bassist Matt Brewer on the oldie Autumn Leaves. To play of his own compositions, Sori has another piano trio that may get very spare and unjazzy, closer to Morton Feldman than Monk. But this present jazz trio has its own transparent sound. Aaron Deal is a deft trio pianist and generous accompanist who knows not to overplay. Piano and bass leave plenty of room for Taishan's limber, mutative drums, which blend propulsion and punctuation. This Taishan Sori trio can play lightly and politely, but they also dig in. On Horace Silver's Enchantment, they leave open space, but every part fits together drum choir style. Bass becomes a percussion instrument, like piano, drums, and cymbals.
Tyshawn Sori and bassist Matt Brewer have played together in a few bands and have a good understanding. Each instantly adjusts to the other's micro-fluctuations. Brewer's sturdy old-school bass thump gives the band a sound bottom and lets him testify with authority. Alongside blues, autumn leaves, and detour ahead, for this tradition-minded date, Taishan Sori brought tunes by Muhal Richard Abrams and Paul Motion, independent thinkers who wrote melodies other folks might play, like Muhal's waltz, Two Over One. Taishan Sori's album Mesmerism celebrates the everyday miracle of the jazz rhythm trio. Each player addresses the beat in a swervy, spontaneous way without constant chaos. A casual romp like this session makes for breezy listening, but it's also a practical way for a composer to recharge his musical imagination before sitting down at a blank sheet of staff paper to plot his next move. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film. He reviewed Mesmerism by the Taishan Sari Trio. Coming up, Washington Post reporter Scott Hyam talks about how America's opioid industry resembled a drug cartel. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. The new book, American Cartel, is about the opioid industry, the American manufacturers, distributors, pill mills, and pharmacies behind the opioid epidemic. It's also about their lobbyists and lawyers, many of whom had close ties to members of Congress and high-ranking officials inside the Justice Department. Some DEA agents left the agency to take high-salaried positions with law firms representing drug companies. The book is also about an unprecedented lawsuit launched in 2018 by a coalition of lawyers and investigators on behalf of thousands of counties, cities, and Native American tribes across America. The suit led to the release of a pill-tracking database and millions of internal corporate emails and memos, which the new book draws on. The book's epilogue refers to a settlement by a company that was the largest opioid distributor, Mallinckrodt. The company did not admit to any wrongdoing, but it did agree to make its internal emails public. Those documents, a huge trove, were made public just a couple of months ago in May. 
but the Washington Post was given access to them before that, so they were able to publish a lengthy article analyzing those documents. My guest, Scott Hyam, co-authored that article, and he co-wrote the new book, American Cartel, along with Washington Post reporter Sari Horwitz. They've been investigating the opioid industry for five years and co-authored the Washington Post series, The Opioid Files. Hyam also partnered with 60 Minutes on an opioid industry investigation that received a Peabody, Emmy, and DuPont Award. Scott Hyam, welcome to Fresh Air. Congratulations on the new book. In what sense was the opioid industry a cartel? Terry, thanks for having me, first off. Uh, you know, Sari and I, like you said, have been investigating this industry for five years, and we've interviewed dozens and dozens of DEA agents, investigators, uh, and attorneys who have worked in this field for, for many, many years. Uh, a lot of them used to work south of the border in Mexico and in Colombia. And when they started investigating uh, the U.S. pharmaceutical industry, they, they saw um, a, a similar structure. Uh, at, at the top, they had manufacturers, and in the middle, there were wholesalers or, or middlemen, and at the bottom were uh, the pharmacies, and in their mind, those were like the, the street dealers. So they saw the same exact structure. They saw that, that these companies were, um, even though they were competing against each other, they were also collaborating with each other, and they were making sure that their business operations were protected against law enforcement. And so the same thing happened here. With these, uh, with these pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, they even bonded together, like the distributors bonded together in a group called the Alliance. What was that? There are a couple of trade organizations that are at the center of, of the uh, opioid industry, and, and one of them is called the Healthcare Distribution Alliance. It is a little-known trade group, but it is incredibly powerful in Washington, and uh, it represents the three largest drug distributors uh, in, in America, um, McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen, along with a host of uh, smaller uh, regional organizations. So they're, they're like most trade organizations. They're, they're a lobbying organization. Um, they, uh, they contribute heavily to members of Congress. Um, but in this case, they helped the industry avoid accountability. You know, Sari and I, looking at the data that you mentioned, Terry, that came out several years ago as part of these lawsuits and looking at all these confidential documents that came out as part of these lawsuits started kind of changing our understanding of the opioid epidemic and, and how it happened. We saw that there were many more companies that manufactured way more pills uh, than Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. I mean, a lot of people believe that the Sacklers and, and Purdue are solely responsible for the epidemic. And we realized, according to the data, that they would be wrong and that a lot of companies jumped into this uh, emerging market. Companies that w we all know, household names like CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, uh, and others that we never knew existed, like Malincrot, a company that's been in existence for 100 years. Uh, they produced 30 times the amount of pills that Purdue Pharma uh, produced. And their conduct was so egregious that the DEA once called them a drug kingpin. So what was the, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency's, approach to investigating what they thought was basically a cartel? Well, they started out um, 
by doing, you know, what any investigator would do, and that is you start out at the lowest levels of, of an organization. And so the, the lowest levels of this organization were the doctors. And there's a plethora of corrupt doctors in this country who were willing to write prescriptions for drugs, for, for cash, for sex, for all kinds of things, and, but mostly for cash. And, uh, and they realized that they kept arresting doctors uh, that they could do that all day long. Every time they took down one doctor, another one would pop up. So then they moved up to the pill mills, uh, which were nothing more than basically criminal fronts for drug dealers. And then they realized, you know, they could knock those over all day long. And, and the pill and mills were basically they, places where doctors would write prescriptions for people who were really not suffering from pain. They were just, you know, addicted to opioids perhaps as a result of having started using them as painkillers, or they were selling opioids. Correct. I mean, they, they, a lot of these were in strip uh, shopping centers, uh, mostly in South Florida because the regulations were so lax down there. And people were traveling from all over the country down to South Florida where they'd go into these pill mills. Uh, the doctor would ask a couple of cursory questions. They would say, oh, I have back pain. They'd write him a script for oxycodone or hydrocodone, and they'd be on their way. And, you know, word quickly spread around the country that this is where you, you could go to get your prescriptions, and then you would take those and you you would fill them in pharmacies all across the country. Um, and so these outposts, it was kind of like the Wild West down there, and, and parking lots were just filled with drug users and drug dealers and uh, people falling out and people using drugs, and it, it was it was a crazy, crazy time. And and the DEA realized that, that there was no way that they could just rein them in because the, it took a long time to investigate these operations and then prosecute them, and then and while they were doing that, then, you know, five more would open up and ten more would open up, and so it was like a cancer. And they realized that what they needed to do was really move up the food chain and go to the drug distributors and the manufacturers. And so that's, uh, that's how they started moving up the food chain of their investigation. So the pharmaceutical industry fought back with the help of their lobbyists and lawyers. And they basically participated in the drafting of a bill that really limited the DEA's ability to go after the drug companies. What was the legislation in question here? You know, this this is um, part of the, the revolving door in, in Washington, Terry, although it's, you know, it's not really revolving anymore. It's just kind of like a one-way street from the, the DEA and the Justice Department to the industry. And uh, what the industry had done to fight back against um, there was a guy named Joe Ranazizi who was running the the small um, organization within DEA trying to hold the companies accountable. Um, what they did is they, they went after Joe. They said he was being too aggressive. And then they went up on Capitol Hill and they got a couple of uh, members of Congress to help sponsor a piece of legislation. Uh, Tom Marino and Marsha Blackburn, who, you know, Tom Marino was from Pennsylvania, Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, two states hit particularly hard by the opioid epidemic. And they uh, they hired a lawyer who once worked for the DEA to help them craft this legislation. And basically what the legislation did is it, it removed from the uh, DEA's arsenal one of its most potent weapons. It's called the immediate suspension order. And in an immediate suspension order, 
immediately shuts down the operations of a drug warehouse, a drug company, preventing them from sending any more narcotics downstream until there's a court hearing. And so that was one of the DEA's most uh, most potent weapons, and it was basically removed at the height of the epidemic uh, by changing a couple of words in the law that had been on the books since the 1970s. What were those words? Under the old law, you had to prove that a company's behavior was causing an imminent danger to a community. And imminent is the key word here. Um, And what the industry did is they changed that word from imminent to immediate. And so it was easy for the DEA to show that that a drug company was causing an imminent danger to a neighborhood or to a community by its conduct or misconduct. Um, But to show that a company based in upstate New York or in Ohio or in Arizona was causing an immediate uh, danger to a community a thousand miles away or two thousand miles away was a bar that was just too high. Uh, And the drug industry knew that the DEA would never be able to meet that bar. And since that law has passed, there's not been one immediate suspension order issued by the Drug Enforcement Administration because they, they they just can't meet that burden of proof. So I guess the difference between imminent and immediate is that imminent means like very soon, but immediate means like right this second, right now, or one second from now. And that's harder to prove. But, you know, Congress, I think, just about everybody, I think, voted for this. President Obama signed the bill into law. Um, How did the drug industry help convince Congress that this was good? Because this is like at the height of the epidemic, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, it it had a very deceiving title. It was called uh, Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Law Enforcement Act. It did not ensure patient access to pain medication whatsoever. It did not improve uh, law enforcement. I think a lot of members of Congress did not read this bill, even though it was just a couple of pages long. The one clause that changed the imminent to immediate was uh, like two sentences long. Um, And so there were a number of members of Congress who took money from the industry and and knew ostensibly what this bill would do. Uh, But there were a number of members of Congress who hadn't even read it. It wasn't even voted on. It was passed by unanimous consent, which basically means that if nobody objects, it becomes uh, becomes law. And then Obama signed it into law. And it's it's still one of the great mysteries of of the day because uh, the president, uh, President Obama, has, has never publicly said why he signed this. Uh, his uh, DEA administrator at the time, Chuck Rosenberg, has never uh, consented to an interview to say why he allowed this to go through. And it was just, uh, it was appalling to all the men and women at the DEA who were fighting the industry that, that this thing would sail through Congress uh, at the height of the epidemic and basically undermine their efforts. The head of the DEA unit that was investigating the pharmaceutical opioid industry was forced out, Joe Renazizi. Um, So why was he forced out? Well, he got very upset that the industry was was fighting back against him and that they had recruited allies on Capitol Hill, that they had recruited all these lobbyists, and that they had recruited uh, basically people who used to work at the Justice Department to then lobby uh, their former colleagues at the Justice Department. And several members of Congress had their staffers uh, get on a phone call with Joe and say, 
you know, we just want to understand why you're opposed to this bill. And Joe's a Long Island guy. He's very blunt. Um, he doesn't suffer fools. And he basically said to these, uh, these aides, to these congressmen that, you know, the, the blood will be on your hands if you pass this bill and you'll be protecting criminals. And so uh, Tom Marino and, 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 and Marsha Blackburn used that language to request a, a, an inspector general's investigation of Joe Ranazizi, saying that he threatened members of Congress. I mean, it was, it was, they were just looking for any excuse that they possibly could find to get rid of Joe because he was, a, he was more than a thorn on their side. He was, he was costing them a lot of money, a lot of aggravation, a lot of legal bills, a lot of fines, and they had had enough with him. So, you know, as Joe would say, they didn't want to obey the law, so they just changed the law. And then a new, uh, a, a new team came into the DEA with a new message, and their message was, we're going to cooperate with the drug industry, and we're not going to be so hostile to them anymore. So Joe Renazizi, the DEA uh, agent running the unit investigating the pharmaceutical industry involved with opioids, he ended up becoming a star witness in the major suit against the industry, against ma- major players in the industry. So he got his day to say what he thought and what he had witnessed and learned. Correct. You know, Joe is... Uh, you know, a guy who, you know, dedicated his whole life to uh, protecting the public and then to, to have his career uh, destroyed at a fairly young age was, was very difficult at first. But then, you know, the, the, the baton was picked up by a, a young lawyer in Huntington, West Virginia, by the name of Paul Farrell. Uh, his town had been decimated by uh, opioids, and he started to figure out that you know that there was a way that he could sue these companies, saying that they were causing a public nuisance in these communities by flooding them with so many doses of drugs, and so he started putting together a, a collection of of lawyers and law firms around the country uh, to sue the industry, and you know now there's you know three thousand, four thousand lawsuits against these twenty four companies, and Joe Ranazizi is now. The, the star witness uh, in many of those suits. In fact, uh, there was a big trial that took place um, uh, last year, last fall, in Cleveland against Walgreens, Walmart, and CVS. And Joe was the star witness in that case, and the uh, plaintiffs prevailed in that case. And those companies are, are looking at uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in fines stemming from that decision by that jury. So uh, Joe is getting his, uh, his day in court, I guess you could say. I just want to say what's unique about this story in a lot of ways is that we're talking about marketing addictive substances. But the techniques used by the industry, do you think those are standard techniques with large, powerful corporations in terms of lobbying Congress and how they do it and how much influence they have? Yeah, it is, you know, it is the way Washington works, Terry. I mean, I think most people think it's, you know, the political parties that run the show or it's the White House that runs the show, but it it really is the it is the companies that run the show. It's the companies and 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 their law firms. Um uh, and their lobbyists on Capitol Hill, and the members of Congress that they have who are willing to write pieces of legislation to benefit their industry or to kill pieces of legislation that are going to be adverse to, to their industry. And uh, this is kind of an age-old story. That the difference here is, is that people were dying by the thousands 
uh, while these companies were lobbying members of Congress and paying them to look the other way and paying them to uh, pass legislation and to lobby members of the Department of Justice and try to slow down the DEA's uh, enforcement efforts. I mean, people were, were, you know, every day, you know, it's the equivalent of, of a 737 Boeing, you know, crashing and burning and killing everybody on board every single day. More than 200 people a day are dying from opioid overdoses. And so and that's just a staggering number. I mean, can you just imagine if every day you turned on the news and another airplane was going down? I mean, there, there would be an outrage of, of this mass casualty. So I, I think that's, that's the difference. Well, Scott Hyam, thank you so much for talking with us, and thank you for your reporting on this. You've been at it a long time and have uncovered a lot. So thank you. Great talking to you, Terry. Scott Hyam is co-author of the new book, American Cartel, Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. He's a reporter for The Washington Post. Fresh Air Weekend was produced this week by Teresa Madden and Thea Chaloner. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs>